From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. For the longest time, Australia was probably among the best in the world at keeping COVID out from strict border closures and quarantine measures to social distancing and snap lockdowns. But now the widespread availability of vaccines, which are already proving themselves in real time for lowering COVID-related deaths, it's also time that we start planning for a future of living with the virus. Today, we're joined by an epidemiologist who has been featured in countless media interviews about how we might safely transition to living with COVID. Welcome to the Tea Room, Professor Catherine Bennett. Hello, Francine. So before I get started, I should introduce you properly. Professor Bennett is the Chair of Epidemiology at Deakin University. Recently, you also published a piece in Public Health Research and Practice, which was about Australia's shift to abandon the COVID zero policy in a lot of ways that we've been fighting for. And it's something that sparked a lot of discussions on basically what's an acceptable level that we can live with for serious illness and hospitalisation and death in the way that we've actually managed to long avoid in Australia. Could you tell us a little bit about what the main crux of that article was about and what response you received to it? Yeah, look, it's really, um, it's kind of, the product of a lot of conversations and then has stimulated more conversation, which is actually really good because we're at a time where we've had a map laid out in front of us with the national plan, which talks in very high level terms, if you if you kind of go back to that original Australian government document at, at what the aim here is. And it's it's actually transitioning our response to COVID into one that's a sustainable response that's actually more equivalent to the way we manage other infectious diseases. So that's the the sort of goal at that top level. But within that, then, they've tried to map out some safe steps as we progressively start to open up. And they they attached the targets to those steps that were built on modelling that told us at what levels of vaccination coverage might allow a level of control where we could start to ease some aspects. And the first couple of phases are very limited steps. Phase B is pretty much what we're doing now with a few um, shifts in, you know, returning back to our international arrival um, caps, um, maybe a bit higher for fully vaccinated returnees and so on. So very, very small steps. But the focus then really shifted to those targets, so it's 70 and 80%. And as it became increasingly obvious that we were going to meet those targets and we might meet them sooner because we now had outbreaks in, in place in New South Wales and Victoria ACT. It, it kind of shifted the conversation again with this real focus then on those 70 and 80% and what opening up meant in a way that was really quite interesting because opening up really wasn't meant to happen until phase D. The, the next point that didn't have a vaccine target that was about actually being sure that our state of preparedness to shift to um, something beyond travel bubbles or or uh, select country um, access for fully vaccinated Australians or whatever, you know, to actually being much more open up in the traditional way of viewing our international borders, for example. And the other thing that happened with the outbreaks was not only that it it kind of shifted things. It also really reminded us how serious an illness you can have with this virus and how that can, in fact, impact your health systems. And so it, it became um, 
very concerning to people that those targets might have it wrong and that we might see numbers exceed what was in the models or the models might not be correct. And it started actually a bit of a, a modelling um, standoff, you know, with different groups approaching the modelling different ways and coming up with different numbers. But as I saw it, you know, we're in a situation where with the outbreaks in the eastern states, it actually allowed us to investigate how vaccination coverage translates to infection control in real time, in the real world. And that that's what we're exactly doing in trying to control these outbreaks. We've put the most severe restrictions in place, trying to manage an outbreak of Delta. It doesn't respond the way previous variants did because it has a shorter incubation period and it means that we have to um, resort to more uh, limitations on population movement to back up what you can do with test, trace and isolate. And normal contact tracing isn't enough with this variant, with our current vaccination levels. So that, that did accelerate vaccination uptake. But at the same time, what's going to happen eventually is, um, under the modelling, and all the modelling tells us this, you get a better control of that infection in the community. And the UK data tells us people who are fully vaccinated have a third of the infection rate if you randomly sample people from the community. The US says it's more like, you know, five-fold less chance of infection um, for those fully vaccinated. So we know it will suppress that transmission potential in the community and help us bring things under control. So in the eastern states, it then becomes a conversation about what case levels then can we tolerate? And as you say, you know, this is it's about lives. It's also about serious illness. And the, and the vaccination increasingly puts a wedge between the notion of infection and the notion of disease. So we start to think of the virus and infection and cases generally differently once the risk of serious disease and the impact on our hospitals becomes more focused and more and reduced. And that's part of the plan is that we, we stop counting cases at some point in the journey from phase B through to D and that we actually focus on serious illness, hospitalizations, disease surveillance, monitoring the variants that are, that are circulating and going down that path. So in Sydney at the moment, as in Melbourne, the focus is on how we can reduce illness, how we can reduce the number of deaths that we're seeing. And that's, that's a, a much more, I guess, traditional way you approach uh, a public health response is you're trying to get to the, to the best you can get to within a reasonable resource allocation. But in some of the other states, they are where we were in, in the eastern states previously, when you're at that time where you've got back to COVID zero, then it seems to be a conversation about how many how many deaths will we accept. But in fact, mm -hmm. the reality is being COVID zero is, is not an option. That's not sustainable. It's not going to last forever. And Delta, you know, has proven that even places like New Zealand can't keep it out. At the moment, though, there's quite a, some people have said it's a soft target in New South Wales of 70% vaccination, which is likely to lead to a horrendous blowout mm. in cases and smash the hospitals. But is it plausible to demand much higher targets at the moment when there's other commentary coming through that we might have plateaued in our vaccination demand now that supply isn't so much of a problem and when there might be a certain group that are resistant even despite vaccine mandates? Yeah, look, we that's true. You don't actually know what your uptake will be until you your supply gets ahead of your demand. And and we are hopefully going to approach that point soon. What we do know is that we've we're hitting eighty percent 
first dose in New South Wales. We do know that um, the Australian government data where they monitor people's um, intent around vaccination has shown that vaccination um, intent, so either having already been vaccinated or clearly planning to be vaccinated, is now back up to its highest levels that it's been since prior to the AstraZeneca um, scares and things very early on in the rollout. So there is a shift and and we know that um, 80% is looking very achievable. The question is whether that's going to be consistent across the population and um, and you don't want to have areas where you have particularly vulnerable groups and particularly if they're people that um, are socially um, or or geographically connected that you can end up with pockets of community where you could have a devastating outbreak happen very quickly if the virus is circulating in the community. So that's actually part of the reason why you want to keep your infection rates low. And Australia's plan isn't to pick 70% and open up. I think we're getting a bit confused with the 70% New South Wales is talking about because that's actually opening up from lockdown, not opening up in terms of, you know, South Australia or WA expectations of opening up, which is something else. That's really more about the international borders. Whereas coming out of lockdown, doing it in a way which continues to keep numbers under control and bringing them down is something we want to achieve because we want to get down to, you know, I I would think double figures at most so that you then, while you're not shocked to have the virus in the community and you're not closing the sitting down because you do, you still are now back operating with a test, trace and isolate system that allows you to keep those numbers at bay and to protect parts of the community where you've got vulnerable people, whether it's they can't be vaccinated or they've chosen not to be vaccinated or vaccination levels are just low still, we still have to have a way of managing um, the risk of disease in the community as we do with our other infectious diseases. So it's a a different thing talking about 70% double jab and and opening up out of lockdown. That then is is a different modelling exercise to see what that does in terms of keeping this under control. But we've already seen with much lower levels, under 40% fully vaccinated, that that New South Wales is definitely heading into a plateau period where they look like they've brought this reproductive number we always talk about, those number of cases um, on average that uh, one person contributes to the next generation of spread. Um, That now is sitting below one. And it looks like if, if it's not just levelling, it might actually start to bring those numbers down. Victoria might be heading to the same, and that's hitting about the same rates that New South Wales was when it started to plateau, the background pattern of this, you know, two weeks ago. So that's promising because it tells us that with the levels we have, which are so far short yet of of the goals, that we're already starting to get a level of control that means with lockdown, you can bring an outbreak under control and and get that R0 to 1 and start to push it below. As our rates go higher, then we can push it further down and bring these outbreaks under control. And then you get to a point where your vaccination rates are so high, you don't need lockdown. You can revert back to other public health safety measures. So that's the idea of it. And we're actually getting a feel for it as we go. So modelling is important to know when you might expect a level of control, but we'll actually know what it is because we'll be driving through these changing vaccination levels as we try and bring these big outbreaks under control so that we do get numbers to something workable. So as you say, that we do keep then um, low levels of people with serious illness, hospitalisation and and deaths. They're the things we want to prevent. And do you think that there's been enough focus yet 
uh, even in public conversation on sustaining immunity. I mean, healthcare professionals are well aware that, you know, this pandemic is far from over. We will be living with it. Uh, at least into the foreseeable future. And it seems from international data that the deadlines on waning immunity can creep up again pretty quickly. I, I believe that six months is one time frame that has been uh, thrown out there. I mean, that comes around pretty quickly. Personally, you know, uh, by that trajectory, I'd be due another jab early next year. But I believe that there's some healthcare workers right now in our COVID wards who are some of the first cabs off the ranks and therefore could probably do with a boost now. And that's a pretty tough sell, I guess, given that some of the public hasn't even had a first dose. Do, do you think that we're uh, prepared to keep vaccinating and within a short enough time frame that we don't have gaps in uh, vaccination going forward? Yeah, it's a very hot topic at the moment because we're still learning from overseas, you know, who did go before us, um, what the story is going to be. It's probably different for different vaccines, and we know that. Um, and and what we've seen in countries has been a combination, as you say, healthcare workers were the frontline workers right up front in most rollouts, along with the elderly and the people, you know, seriously vulnerable, so with comorbidity. And seeing waning in that group, um, particularly the elderly, you know, is is one where you'd most expect to see waning if it was going to happen. Plus, these are the people that had it first, so it's important to to look at that more closely and make sure that our um, healthcare workers are also being monitored, not just ignored, and and the focus on on those that might have more rapidly waning immunity. But it's also how they actually assess that risk. And you know, you can we have our proxies for infection risk. And so people are looking at the serology, but they're not always clear what your antibody levels will tell you in terms of your protection. And and generally what they're saying is for most people, it's probably looking more like nine months, not six months. And, and then it's not even clear whether that would relate to all people with a vaccine and whether you, you know, just need to have people evaluated, but then it's also these, um, these sort of proxy indicators that might not be that reliable. So that's what they're looking at. And AstraZeneca doesn't seem to wane in quite the same way as Pfizer. So it depends, again, which vaccination people have had. And so I do think we we will have time. I and mean, because we've accelerated this end of the um, the rollout in Australia, and if everybody basically will have access uh, before the end of October, um, from what we're told about our supply, then that does take some pressure off. It doesn't mean people still won't be being vaccinated right up, you know, beyond that as we get numbers even higher. But it will be about how you manage your rollout if it is then deemed necessary and and particularly prioritising those people who received the vaccine first. It will be easier than it was the first time around because we've got the the supply lines in place, the distribution uh, model in place. So that would certainly help as well. But at this stage, it's not looking like everyone would need a second dose, at least not immediately. And the other thing around dosing is is whether, um, so with Pfizer, they're saying it's really a third dose rather than a booster. It might be a consolidating dose. But also there's the next generation vaccines that might be a better fit to Delta. And actually, you know, that's part of the Moderna deal, for example. And so that might be something else to focus on, particularly with our frontline workers, because Delta's the one we're dealing with. It's more likely to have people in that um, serious illness end if you have breakthrough infections and so on. So it might be as much about boosting 
and and having that next generation vaccine as it is about you know boosting someone's specific immune response so all those things we'll learn about over the next few months but i do think um, bringing forward the end date to the at least giving everyone access to the vaccine makes this next phase and these ongoing phases um, definitely more possible. Yeah, I think if we were still only halfway through our first rollout and we're realising that we're rolling out so slowly, we're not going to um, get to the end of it before we're, we're trying to then overlap that with, with a whole rollout of, of booster dosing. That would, be, that would be a very different situation to the one we're in. Professor Bennett, thank you for your time. Thank you. Before we go, don't forget that you can follow or subscribe to The Tea Room right now by searching for the show on the podcast player of your choice. You'll then be notified when a new episode becomes available. Catch you next time.